Hello, Bonsai friends. This is Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai, and welcome to episode 38 of Little Things for Bonsai People, the podcast. And this time I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Lane of Kitsune Bonsai. How's it going, Mike? Hey, guys. How's everyone doing? And also, we got a special guest on the show today, Paul Stefan or Paul Stefan. How's it going, Paul? I'm doing well. Uh, what about yourself? Uh, pretty well, pretty well. Uh, looking to be a little goofy today, Look, looking to talk about bonsai pots, because I know that's something you're really into, and you can uh, definitely give us some good information on that, because I don't know very much about bonsai pottery, unfortunately. Yeah, this would be yeah I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Before we get started, though, I want to mention that our podcast is sponsored by our amazing patrons over on patreon.com forward slash little things for bonsai people. Uh, we have a list of bonsai best buds. That's our top tier. It's five bucks for the top tier. Ain't that much. Uh, starting the list off with Tori Solis, Warehouse Rat, Boyd Snellgrove, Ricky Ruins, Joshua Bentley, Snappy Chappers, Ryan Giordano, Joel Jenkins, Justin Knight, Backyard Bonsai Australia, The Ladies at the Flower Market, Taylor Peacock, Chase Pertweet. Oh, I was doing so well. Vicky Auth, Austin Atkins, and Karen Codswell. Thank you guys so much for being best buds and supporting our show, helping us grow, helping us do more uh, more things like this, talking to people about bonsai. It's and awesome. Can I give a special shout out to Snappy Chappers for just having the best uh, name ever? <laughs> and, yeah. and that, like... I don't even know what he means by that, but I, don't I know, know it's, but it's, I love it. It's chapping his snappers, um, yeah, snappy chappers. And uh, also a quick shout out to our editor really quick, Matt O'Donnell. Uh, go over to MattO'Donnell.com. He's a bass player based out of Nashville, Tennessee. He's also an audio engineer and uh, he can work on your podcast with you if you want to create your own show. He's he's a really cool guy. He does really great work. Makes me sound smart. And whenever I stumble over words, it's not that bad. He was joking about earlier in the Discord where uh, I'm got I've gotten so much better at pronouncing people's names and uh, getting certain words because I've been practicing my English, I've been talking on the show, <laughs> yeah. and now he's like disappointing. He's like, we need more Patreons to give more complicated handles so he can stumble on them even more. So yeah, true that. True. <laughs> but anyway, well, yeah, welcome, Paul. How's it going, Paul? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, good. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's doing good. Um, so before before we started the show, you were just talking to us about moving up to the Pacific Northwest, um, the Washington side of Vancouver. Um, how's it how's it growing trees up there? Is it a lot different than what you were used to in California? I would say the growing season is is similar to certain areas of California. Um, I have not lived through the rainy season yet, but yeah. it's been. The trees have been liking it a lot. Uh, it's pretty temperate. There are some hot days, a little bit more humidity up here uh, compared to Southern California, but similar climate. So uh, the transition hasn't been too difficult. And what do you, I know you, I know you grow like sweet, awesome little olives. I know you grow sweet, awesome little figs. Um, what else are you kind of growing? You know, what are some of the things that are we'd find in your garden? Uh, I've been growing a lot of starter material, uh, just looking into the future and no one really has, uh, the level of mame or shohin that I want. So I figure I just have to start growing it. You just got to grow your uh, own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I have a batch of about 10 black pine mame, gr- uh, growing. I have, uh, about 12 Itoigawa and some Kishu, uh, 
about 10 chojubai, uh, just all the species I really like that I think would make good small trees. Yeah. I have a good batch of them, but I have a variety of trees from deciduous, like I have a winged elm, uh, uh, Itoigawa species, a lot of figs, of course, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> One of yeah, my favorites. Those yeah. are awesome, man. Those are uh, those are like f famous Paul stuff and figs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hats yeah, off to cool. you uh, working with winged elm. That's one of my favorites. You like winged elm? Oh, I love winged elm. It's probably yeah. I probably value them more than bald cypresses, believe it or not. Oh wow! And they're considered yeah, a trash tree. <laughs> yeah, Louisiana's got a lot of uh, like hackberries, um, a oh, lot yeah. of winged elms, cedar elms, things like that. So a lot of good stuff. You know the here. yeah, that's the stuff Evan's working on. A lot of a lot of uh, deciduous broadleaf. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so Paul, how did you get into bonsai? Before we get into the uh, the the pottery nerd section of the podcast. Sure. <laughs> uh, I it was. It was in my early 20s, and I was kind of confused with what I wanted to do with my life. And um, before bonsai, I I was really into just rare plants, tropicals, and and like herbalism and all that. Uh, I was actually a nursing major for a bit, and that's kind of what my parents wanted me to do. And I did horticulture on the side, but uh, one day I just decided. I want to get a plant science degree and I just want to pursue what I love. And I did that and I started growing more plants. Uh, I stumbled upon bonsai just walking into a shop in uh, northern San Diego. And it just took off from there, just an addiction. And I changed my whole career path and it, it just went hand in hand. Uh, but uh, where I've ended up today, about eight years later, I'm pretty happy with. So I uh, I don't regret it at all. Now, and, uh, are, oh, oh, sorry, ahead, Mike. Sorry, Evan. Are you um, doing bonsai? Are you looking to do bonsai full time? Or are you working in that direction? Or what are what are kind of your goals within? Uh, um, in the art? I would I would love to do that maybe one day. I think that would be more of a retirement thing. Yeah. Um, because I I really want a house and I just can't afford that until I make enough to, to buy one. Um, there's just certain things I need before I can do that. Right. And, and, uh, my job right now, I love it actually, it's not too far off from, uh, working with bonsai trees. I, I, uh, I deal every day with customers who, who work with plants of all sorts. Uh, so I'm not unhappy with what I'm doing now, but I, I would love to do that one day. And I, but as of now, it's just, I can't call it a hobby because of how you guys know how much time this takes. Right. Exactly. It's more of a passion. Yeah. And if anyone knew how much you commit, they would like want to start intervention or something. Yeah. And think that something was wrong with you. Well, I, you know, I, I was just having this conversation with one of my students today and this might get a little corny for some, but bonsai has become almost like a spiritual pursuit for me. You know, it's, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I didn't get into this, like wanting to be Zen or wanting to necessarily have patience. You know, I got, I got into it wanting to make cool trees and what's happened is like bonsai has ground Zen into me and, uh, it's grounded patience into me because I want what I want and there's only one way to get it. 
and that's uh, awesome. Yeah, so that's that's uh, interesting. It's you funny. Find... You, it's funny you say oh, that, Mike, about uh, being corny with it, because <laughs> we got a lot of positive feedback on that that couple of episodes back when you got really philosophical. Yeah, everyone loved that. So, oh, all right. Well, <laughs> I think it's. Well... It's good or all around for you now. <laughs> yeah, I got to just lean into it. <laughs> yeah, just keep leaning into it more and more. Yeah, uh, um, yeah were you saying, Paul? Do you, guys, do you guys find when uh, in hard spots of your life, as Bones, I've been like a foundation for you? Have you kind of leaned back into it and it's always been there for you in hard yeah. times? Yeah, I think bonsai is like a microcosm to me for what human life is. I think, um, you know, the the more you put in towards longer term goals and the more you, you kind of focus on the journey and less on the end result. And then the biggest thing is the, the closer you can get to accepting impermanence, I think is the key to what bonsai has to offer the human race. As again, corny as it sounds, but mm. <laughs> I, I think, I think like at the core it's wabi-sabi and at the core of wabi-sabi is the appreciation of impermanence. And you know, that's probably one of the toughest pills to swallow uh, philosophically as a human being is that, you know, everything we're going to touch, everything we're going to experience is going to end. And bonsai really kind of has, at least for me, helped me learn that the journey is the only thing that matters. You know, getting to the end mm. is nice, but I actually have a saying now uh, to some of my students, it's fear the finish line because there's nothing good there except the end of that journey. You know, and um, I, I like to liken bonsai to raking sand, the Zen gardens. You know, you're just going to have to wake up tomorrow and rake the sand again. And yeah. um, you hope that you rake it a little better than you did the day before, that your mind is a little more clear, that, you know, you have a little more um, uh, little more introspection than you did the day before. So that's kind of, I do think it's helped me through hard times in life. And I think it's it's the crutch i lean on when i have those kind of thoughts mm -hmm. yeah everything mike said because he puts it in so much better words um <laughs> but yeah it's uh bonsai has really opened up my world i mean i have traveled more than i have ever in my life and experienced new things that i never thought i would experience and bonsai and like bonsai is all directly connected to it and it's been amazing it's really it's given me a lot of purpose. So yeah, through hard times, I kind of just say, I, I, you know, bonsai got me here. So why should I, you know, why should I worry? You know, like I can always just go back to my trees and start from square one again. Kind of like how Mike said, said it's like fear the finish. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably one of my uh, new quotes I can kind of carry around in that, uh, that bag of, you know, <laughs> bag of, of inspirations. Yeah. <laughs> tropes and inspiration. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's a good time. Um, Paul, I think one of the things that I've been dying to talk to you about is, and this is going to be multi-level because there's a lot to this, but obviously your expertise with Mame and Shohin pottery. Mm -hmm. uh, how mm -hmm. did you, I guess the first question is, how did you kind of fall into that? I mean, I guess I can kind of assume, you know, you like Shohin, high quality Shohin trees, you're going to like high quality pots, but how did you get into like the niche kind of antique potters and where do you even find the information, like the history and all that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it probably started with, I, I don't know if this is all bonsai people, but I think we're all inherently collectors. Mm -hmm. um, 
I've asked a lot of people, and you may even mention this in previous podcasts, but a lot of bonsai people have have been coin collectors Mm -hmm. previously. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever collected coins or anything. I I have, and I've collected a lot of other things, but yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think we're collectors at our heart, and a lot of us, and the history that is also a part of the collection of the bonsai pottery is a very uh, intoxicating thing. And so I would say I started with just doing research online and uh, there's some uh, different sources where you get book material mm-hmm. and, and I would just Google trans or translate it with my phone and just right. start, just start reading it that way. And, uh, First, I was buying a lot of like Bushwan pots. You maybe remember that from years yeah, past. Yeah, yeah. I bought one from you. Yeah, I bought a couple yeah. from you. Yeah. Yeah, those are really nice, uh, fun pots. And then as I started reading more and learning more about these old artists and realizing uh, why and how they're they're so valuable, or at least to me, right. um, I started collecting them. And it's... Just over the years, uh, I've, I have probably, I don't know, maybe 20 plus that I'm proud of right. uh, in my collection so far. And and I guess part of the reason why, to answer your first question, how did I learn about it? It was reading books. And I tried, it, I tried to make YouTube videos to educate other people on that as well. It's yeah. just so time consuming and with work. Right. It's been hard. <laughs> I know. I know the that. feeling. I've tried to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, another very beautiful thing about the old pots is the way they created these pots, often in wood-fired kilns. Mm-hmm. You just can't, you don't have any more. Right. It's gas usually or electric, and there's nothing wrong with that. But mm. a wood-fired kiln, especially from these pre-World War II times, there's an unpredictable aspect about it and there's also a the glazes a lot of the different metals and colorants they used we're not allowed to use anymore that's what i was gonna ask yeah right yeah like lead and sometimes even radioactive material so like (laughs) the yellow pots sometimes if you uh measured the radioactive weight uh level of them they're they're emitting radiation <laughs> that's amazing that's yeah. that makes me want more yellow pots <laughs> I, I already have a ton but um that's that's really amazing and you're that's obviously only going to be with the older pots that are from the old wood fire kilns and what are those kilns called again i can't remember the name of them uh naborigama naborigama that's uh it. there's the the climbing kilns the dragon yeah. kilns uh i guess yeah there's uh, these big kilns where I believe the the heat would kind of rot. It was like steps, and the heat yeah. would rise up through the kiln. Uh, but they, hmm. oh, sorry, yeah. they basically had to like man that kiln as well, right? Like all through oh, yeah. the entire firing process and keep feeding it and monitor the temperature and stuff like that. So it's not kind of just like it is today, where you're setting it on a computer and it's just kind of handling it, you know? So, yeah. It's a communal it's, process. Yeah. It's electric very... kilns have come a really long ways. Um, and I, yeah, what you guys are saying, like keeping one of those kilns going 
and like the the setup like why it was such a big deal is like the setup of them like building them took a long time and then getting them going and keeping them up to temperature and making sure that it doesn't ever waver from from whatever cone you were firing up to was yeah. was a big deal and then that well, would go on for days they would fire that's these what guns. uh mm-hmm. paul, paul mentioned the climbing kilns and mm-hmm. uh yeah that's that's uh i can't imagine like you know having to get that up to temperature and stuff like that they're it's massive just wild. too they usually be how big would they be oh well it could, i mean it could be giant yeah. yeah giant you know two stories something like that so because i think they would only fire a couple times a year because it's it would take so much wood so much energy to fire these kilns so much time that uh they would put as much in there as they could uh, I, i'm assuming depending on what the setup was for these different potters but for example in like the kyoto region uh there was a lot of communal kilns and you'll find different artists like uh, Eso Wakamatsu or even uh, Tofukuji. He didn't have his own kiln, so he would rent out spaces for like little spots in a bunch of different kilns. And that's why his pots are so valuable because right. they're so variable and different because yeah. he didn't have one kiln. So each pot could look so different and it has its own character because he, his poverty actually ended up being his strength right exactly because he it made all of his work different yeah and yeah so i I also one of the things i think we talked on the podcast before is how he had to he didn't have a lot of money to rent the spaces and so he would have to take like the the crappiest section of the kiln like the riskiest spot is basically what he could afford and so they would price it according to like how risky the area was and you know the the people paying the most money would get the premium spot in the kiln and then you know whatever you're paying you get like the sides and um so i i remember reading this article that was discussing how he would put like every penny he had basically it was all his eggs into one basket and then cross his fingers and hope that this batch of pots that at the time nobody even wanted you know these shohin pots that were wild and vibrant and uh yeah i love that you mentioned tofukuji and wakamatsu because they're uh that that starving artist mentality that moth to the flame is is something very romantic about that yeah and and takamoto would be another one and and his history is fascinating uh he was actually born in the samurai class like it's just so amazing that you collect these pots that when they were making them, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have cars, they didn't have airplanes, they hadn't lived through the First World War or they were going to later in their life. And a lot of the potters actually served in World War II. So the pain and suffering and just the, and the events of, that they experienced in their life was pretty uh, traumatic. And they were still able to make such beautiful things with fairly minimal inputs other than wood and colorants and clay like earth basically so it just goes to show you you don't have to have you can make do with what little that you have and still make beautiful things and those beautiful things can they could transcend time like yeah 
some of these items have been made over 150 years ago, but they can still be appreciated today and they still can affect someone's soul or whatever. And you could just be like, wow, this is so beautiful. And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's just like whoever made this was sitting in some like wicker or I don't know, some old style hut thing and was using wood to to, to make make this fuel right like, it's just crazy and uh, it's, it's alchemy you know that's all i can say is you're i mean you're like giving it up to the the gods of pottery you know <laughs> you, you, the unpredictable results it's uh it's pretty wild so uh one last uh, well i have a couple more i'm sure evan has some too but yeah, one yeah. thing i i'm really curious about is um what if you could if you know why the fascination with nakawatari era chinese pots like why why the the traveling era why is that so popular uh compared to kowatari yeah or i would say uh nakawatari there so when the economy after the meiji restoration japan uh started really becoming a powerful nation uh they defeated Russia, I believe like around 1900 or 1899, like they were really making a mark in the world and they were starting to get more money. So in that early 1900s kind of period to 1920, uh, around that, or even to 1930, around that area, uh, era, they had more money. And so they were commissioning uh, China to make a bunch of pots and importing them. A lot of those pots that came through are the Nakawatari. And and so there's just a ton of them out there. Like a lot of people think antiques are rare, but they're really not. They're not that rare. Uh, And some of them can be expensive depending on the condition. Uh, But they have just enough age and they're not too expensive like the Koatari. So that's probably why they're pretty popular because they're a good bang for your buck kind of pot. They have uh, usually a hundred plus to a hundred years of age. So the patina on those glazes are nice. Um, that's one issue with a lot of new pots is you have to wait like a hundred years for them to really mature right. and come into, yeah, maturation. There's like juvenile in a sense. Right. So uh, that would probably be why they're very popular or desirable because they're affordable. There's a lot of them and yeah and they have that age interesting and would you say that and i i have my own opinions on this but i'm curious like what the more professional opinion is is can there be too much patina like i've seen some pots where they almost Hmm. look like filthy you know and i like it i like a good dark patina but i've seen some like yellows where they look like gray you know like the whole pot is now gray and I, I just wondered what the like Japanese uh, outlook on that is, and and how do you how do you clean a pot without affecting the patina? Uh, those are great questions. I think that could be preference, and it's a lot of a lot of case by case of if it's too much patina or not. I have heard that before though, and I do think you can get too much patina. Yeah. Uh, depending on the pot on some, it's 
you could it's hard to get too much but right uh i could yeah i could see how they could get too dirty where they start mm-hmm. losing it just starts dulling things in uh too dramatically mm-hmm. but in terms of reversing the patina without removing it entirely which i've seen some people do and they know, unknowingly they too. unknowingly are like um uh, removing hundreds of dollars of value out of, off of the pot by doing that right and so i would leave it alone if you don't want it to age more just stop using it outside right. and just use it in shows but mm. it's pretty hard to have if you have too much patina that's better than not enough right right <laughs> absolutely absolutely but there has been some i've seen some where where i've been it just a few but there has been a few where I've been like, ah, that might be a little much for me, you know, where, like, like I said, the this good example was that yellow that like ended up a gray and, yeah. you know, it, it's, it was just a lot, you know? And, um, I usually, I love when the yellows turn more like a chartreuse when they really start taking on that, that dull color, but I don't know my own opinion though. So, um, Evan, do you have any questions for Paul? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I kind of struggle with, with trying to explain to people, um, what the significance of checking out bonsai pottery is all about is identification. So Paul, can you give us some guidelines on identifying like kanji or chops or any other distinguishing, uh, factors that when you're looking at a pot to determine whether or not it's valuable or if it's old or if it's made by a certain, uh, producer i would say the vast majority of the pots that we have that you're going to encounter if you go to a nursery and you see them under a bench or um and they have markings on them on the bottom the chops they're going to be from the tokoname region Mm. uh that's kind of a production region in japan so a lot of like they wouldn't make just you probably heard this before they didn't only make pots there they used to make like toilets and just anything pottery (laughs) Yeah. And so, but it was, it was and still is a production region. So the amount of output from like the Koyo kiln or the Yamaki kiln or all those different kilns, uh, those are probably the ones you're going to need to check chops on. And there's uh, databases online that you could use to kind of, when you look at the chop and then compare it, and you could ask someone who has more experience, like, hey, do you know who maybe made this? And uh, they could guide you in the right direction. But for the vast majority of pots, it's going to be uh, the price is probably not going to be outrageous. And it's going to be more of a tokoname pot. But there are some older pots, like some of the antique uh, Chinese pots. And those are far more dif- difficult to uh, identify because a lot of them don't have chops or if they do have chops, there's so many different types. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think when you would have to get a professional really to do that. And, uh, if you wanted to identify something, but probably 95% of the time it's going to be tokoname and then maybe a little bit of, uh, old or vintage Chinese, uh the there aren't as many antiques out there i think in the u.s because it's just not something that we've ever valued here right uh it's it's 
in shows in California for, I've always seen like a Yamaki pot, which is nothing wrong with that, but uh, as in a show and that's fine. Uh, but it's, uh, and I guess that's an interesting question. Is that fine for, uh, is that considered a show quality pot or not? Mm. And I don't really know the, the true answer on that. It's probably fine. Um, but I guess that's all up to preference. Like if you went to the Coca food, they wouldn't, I don't think they, they would have like a Yamaki as, and I yeah. could be wrong on that, but. And that's the standard, that's the standards that each region and each country would hold their bone size shows to is like, I I'm willing to bet you bet that a lot of people who go to bone size shows either put on by ABS or the national show or uh, what, whatever you might happen to stumble upon. That's a formal show. I'm willing to bet that a lot of people at that show don't know what they're looking at when they look at a bonsai pot, unfortunately. Um, I think it's a I little would agree bit, with that. It's a little more underappreciated than when someone looks at the tree. Yeah. The tree is framed beautifully by the pot and it's great, but there's even less people that are interested in the bonsai pottery aspect of this whole display. And yeah, I, in Kokofu for sure, I can imagine like if you went in there with, and you guys are throwing around uh different era, like Japanese eras and, and other regions and stuff that I'm not familiar with, but you know, I'm sure you could get either laughed, laughed out of the, the show, or you can be just not permitted to show your tree in that is, I guess the standards is higher over there. Um, so yeah. Well, and they rent pots too. Yeah, oh, they rent okay. them. And cause think like the, again, and we've talked about this before, but like the Japanese appreciation of bonsai is the appreciation of age. And so like, they don't care about some new pot that's, I mean, they might show it if it's some like ex amazing piece, uh, mm. some masterpiece, but uh, when paired with the tree, you know, especially an old tree age is the most, uh, the most valuable thing you can have. So yeah. I think that to me, especially, I think that trumps everything, you know, an old tree I'd rather see than like a new tree that's hyper styled or hyper wired out, or even some new, um, kind of cutting edge style. I would much rather look at something that's very, very old. Mm -hmm. And it's just, there's another thing too, that a lot of people don't think about uh, with bonsai is uh, is that you should never buy the pot and then try to get the tree for it. You should always have the tree waiting for the for the right pot. Um, I don't know if you guys agree with that. That's kind of the way I look at it. Is like when I, the tree's I, ready, then you go find the pot for it. I think that is a rewarding way. I think that's a very satisfying way to do it. But I've also bought pots because I love them. Oh and yeah, I'm not I'm not necessarily <laughs> trying to stuff a tree in there. But it's good to have a variety of pots so that when you are looking for a suitable container for a tree that you have, you have a bunch of options to pull from. But I do agree with you. I'd say that with the, the feeling I get, the satisfaction I get, and the culmination uh, I feel when it's been years of searching for the right pot for the tree I've been working on feels really, really good. Yeah. So I won't disagree with that. What What do you think, Paul? Uh, I, I think it also, uh, I could go either way. And the reason being, it also depends on what size, uh, tree for, 
bigger trees, you probably want something customized. But for and also if you look in um, Shohin displays like Gafuten in Japan, the pots are actually even more important. Mm -hmm. uh, it becomes. I feel like with smaller, and that's probably why I collect so many small pots. Right. Um, with the smaller trees, the pot, you can get a little bit more wild. Uh, you could get a little bit, yeah, eccentric or however you want to describe it. Mm -hmm. And you could grow a tree for that pot because the pots aren't so big. Mm -hmm. And if you have a giant pot, growing a tree for that is going to be pretty difficult. And I think it's more you find a pot for those bigger trees. Yeah. And for Shohin, Mame, it's a, a bit of growing and collecting and you just mix and match and have fun with it. It's mm -hmm. a little bit more whimsical and easygoing than like Kokafu where there's big, big trees, big stakes, expensive everything. Like some of those pots right. start getting insanely expensive and the trees could go for tens and tens of thousands of dollars or mm -hmm. crazy amounts. It becomes almost like a show of wealth. And right. in my eyes, uh, the Gafu 10 is a little bit more uh, accessible to kind of hobbyists or people who just have a passion. Not to say that the pots don't get expensive, but. Right. But yeah. they're not, they don't seem to be like prohibitively expensive. You know, they seem to be within the, the realm of a, a collector's budget, you know. But, yeah, many many of them can be. A lot of the a lot of the shohin that are the shohin pottery that's been popping up recently, I've been noticing uh, can ballpark anywhere from two hundred is like pretty low for a lot of these high quality pots. Yes, um, up to six to eight. You know, like you, you said, they can go higher. And these are shohin containers that can be anywhere from four inches is pretty typical up to like a six or a seven if it's a more of a flat lands landscape style uh what's the what's that pot style that i see a lot it looks like it's got um like it's just a different texture suddenly in the middle like a block you have a couple of these uh mike where it's 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 a regular glaze on the outside but the middle has like a pattern oh like painted i see what you're talking about that's yeah that's a, a glaze with a painted center so so, and Paul knows more than I do about this stuff, but my understanding with Shohan pottery, and at least what I've experienced is you're going to see four different types of like skills that are involved. So you're going to see glazing, painting, carving, and um, glazing, painting, carving, and I'm missing one. Uh, and form. Mm, okay. Form is the last one. So, uh, and you'll find masters that specialize in either one of those aspects or mix the two. So I'd say like the pot you're referencing is Satomi is very famous for doing, well, not very famous, but a famous potter for doing two-tone pots where it's glazed on the sides. And then there's a small like portion where he paints, um, mm. in the middle. And, uh, so that's mixing two of the skills, but like Paul has a pot that I'm obsessed with by Zeshin, which is an old, uh, an old potter. And, um, he would be considered in my mind, uh, maybe Paul will agree, but he's kind of the quintessential pot carver that everybody's trying to emulate these days. Oh yeah. Tell us about that, that, uh, that pot and that maker a little bit more, Paul. Uh, Okatani Zeshin, he, he makes these like weird psychedelic 
uh, pots that have all these different motifs or he makes sometimes like little animals like owls or frogs or um, really strange stuff. I don't know if he was on drugs or what he was doing, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it has a life. charm about it. Mm-hmm. And the pot that I think Mike is talking about, it's, it's this frog that has its mouth open wide and it kind of looks like plants when you plant things in it. It's like vomiting plants. Mm, I love it. And, it's my uh, favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the frog pots or uh, crab pots, all these weird things. He he was a very strange guy, but uh, a lot of people love collecting his pots because of how unique they are and the carving and the detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has also like a repeating monk pattern on repeating some of his monks. Pots. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, he's, he's now deceased, he's deceased, but he definitely left his mark and those frog pots are pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Oh, sorry. Do you you have a favorite potter, Paul? That's, that's a great question. It's really hard to pick favorites, just like it's hard to pick a tree favorite. They all kind of do their own different charm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, maybe, uh, and you kind of change your mind over time. I really enjoyed the Takamoto pot just because of the age and right. the story behind that individual. Yeah. Uh, being he lived through the Civil War, went from like a noble class, the samurai class, into really nothing and taking up pottery and becoming pretty famous within a short period of time and then dying like really tragic life. <laughs> but, right. and a lot of these potters had very tragic lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why that's a repeating pattern within some of the pottery um, people, but uh, it's interesting listening or reading their, their life story and, and uh, just seeing how they could overcome that and make beautiful things. It's fascinating. I mean, I had this whole conversation with a guy about like, you know, it's easy for us, especially I do it all the time. I romanticize that pursuit, you know, that like I mentioned earlier, that moth to the flame pursuit. But I have to wonder, like when you're trying, if if I was Tofukuji and I'm trying to put bread on the table at the time was, did I want that life? You know, did I, was I, was I truly willing to give it all up or was that just a a kind of consequence to the life I had chosen, you know, and it, and it just didn't work out in my lifetime. So it's, it's a fascinating study into seeing like, I don't know, uh, art, you know, just an art as a whole, I think. Yeah. Uh, do you guys ever feel that sometimes like the, oh, yeah. the moth, the moth of the flame, like is what I'm doing worth it or, no, I, I think it, it's it's funny, and this is a little <laughs> little personal, but like my, I have it with bonsai, and um, and like my dad has it with guitar, and like I've watched my dad, like I've watched him at times like light his his life on fire for guitar, you know, to do whatever he'll do, whatever needs to happen, burn any bridges he needs to burn mm. to play guitar, and um you know, it's, there's something very beautiful about that. I I don't know why that is. Um, It's tragic, but it's also, 
very beautiful. It's almost like a sacrifice that they're that the artist is giving up for the the observer. You know, mm-hmm. it's like they're giving up their life so we can have these these goods. You know, like mm-hmm. to- Tofu Kuji sacrificed his life and led a tragic life so that we could have those wares. And I think that is a uh, like you said about Takamoto, when you think of it like that, the sacrifice that went into it, it's a beautiful, beautiful little piece that we have left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Evan, would you say that too? I would I would love to think that all the trees that I put all this time and thought into, that once I'm gone, they're uh they're gonna be taken well well taken care of. <laughs> and it could amount to nothing, which is also another scary thing about it, you know. Um and putting yourself into it, it's because of the impermanence of it. Like we'd mentioned earlier, it's like, oh man, it's, you know, do I put all this effort in these trees and then suddenly not be able to to see where these trees go? Because that's kind of one of the things that I really love about doing bonsai is the development phase and then seeing it get into, come into fruition and then keep going and going. I want to see it become hundred years old, 200 years old, you know, mm-hmm. but we, we can't. And that's the kind of thing that I think is beautiful about bonsai too, is like you strive for that, that future that you can't see. It's like the whole thing where it's like you plant a seed, it's the tree for the next generation right. type thing. It may never come. You may never get the payoff. Yeah. And that, I think that's more worth it mentally. You know, that's another thing where it's just like one of those mental mindsets, more worth it to think it that way than Oh, when I'm gone, uh, someone's going to forget to turn the watering system on one day and all my trees are. You know. Right. <laughs> but it, it is, it is, it, it is something to kind of consider for sure. Um, for being devoted and married to the craft to, to the extent where, and, and the thing with pottery though is pottery doesn't, it doesn't really die. Um, unless you on something unfortunate happens where it breaks for some reason or another. Uh, but I think, Bonsai potters have a little bit of an upper hand too. They can create as many pots as they want to in their lifetime, as many as they can stand making. And if enough people love them and cherish them enough, their their pieces will live on and even could see multiple plantings. Like you said, like with Shohan plantings, you can change them up, interchangeable pots with trees. And I think that's, that's really awesome. That's a really way, good way to think about it too. Um, So yeah. Uh, Paul, have you ever thought about, making your own bonsai pottery? I mean, that was kind of the question I had floating around earlier. Uh, I actually, I did, uh, I had my own kiln back in California. I couldn't bring it up. It was too big, too heavy. And I don't have the space for it. But once I get a house, I'm bringing the kiln back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, do you still have the little uh, Zeshin copies you made? Uh, I, I, I got it. No, I think I actually sold most of those, but but I'm going to make more. I'll make more. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll Um, definitely make more of those. Yeah. You were also, weren't you like, you were studying and reproducing a lot of these like famous spots, weren't you? Yeah. So I was getting kind of, uh, now it's not an issue, but down in California, the water quality is so horrendous that it would actually even ruin these pots. Right. You would get scale, like lime scale. So it's a calcium and magnesium deposit right. on the pots. And the only way to remove it sometimes is you remove a bit of the patina each time. Right. That's what I was asking earlier. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That sucks. Yeah, yeah, it does suck. But uh up in the up here in the Pacific Northwest, it hasn't been an issue. So 
Uh, once I have my own place and I feel safe about the backyard and all that, then I think I'll start using uh, some of the pots just to gain patina on them. But mm. it's it's difficult because uh, as you you guys have probably seen this, there's a lot of like theft in the bonsai community there going is, on, and yeah. it's so easy to steal small trees and yeah, pots no. and stuff. And uh, have you guys had any? bad experiences with that yeah or not hopefully not yet knock on wood no but (laughs) but honestly as corny as it sounds the the thought of theft is what made me originally get into the zen part of the hobby is like i've had to do this or at least previously had to do the hobby and be a professional without a lot of security and Mm -hmm. so the problem was i had to ask myself what would i do if i came home one day and all my bonsai were gone and my first instinct is throw a temper tantrum and like give it up and be like, what a waste of time, what a waste of money, yada, yada, yada. But the truth is what would probably happen is after the temper cools down and after the pain wears off, I'd go to Home Depot, I'd buy some trees or I'd go to Weiger to a bonsai nursery, I'd buy some trees and I'd start dabbling again. And I don't think there's anything that could happen now in my life that would stop me from wiring trees or pruning trees or doing the act of bonsai. And so that's what made me really start thinking about what am I getting out of this? What is permanent from bonsai? And that's the act of doing, you know, the, the, well, that's what I can take with me. And that's all I can take with me. The, my teacher has always been very big on like trees can die at any time. Pots can break at any time. You know, all you're really guaranteed is like that time you have with it. So sell it when you can enjoy it while you can. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, try not to let it consume you when something bad happens. Yeah. And uh, one of my my thoughts about it, too, is like for you, Mike, and uh, apparently with with Paul is uh, with some of the small trees. I do have a good handful of small trees, but the the ones that I, I kind of value more sometimes are the big ones, because if someone's really wanting to steal my tree, um just uh just could put a couple of like four hand and six hand pots in my uh my bonsai collection so that at least they'll they'll start the struggle uh taking it out they'll have oh, to really i do want i it. do all all kinds of annoying things too to really piss them off like i tie them all down with wire to the bench i uh you know like they could still get them but they're gonna have to like drag half the bench with them they're gonna have to work for it they're gonna have yeah, to know gonna... <laughs> and that's right. another thing too is like i know that they had the incident with the uh with the Pacific Bonsai Museum where the those people took those couple of trees and then they were missing for almost a week and then they came back and they were in the parking lot. Um, yeah, that's right. And I can't remember when that was. And I'm like, you know what they probably realized is that they didn't know anything about taking care of these high value trees and they were just inevitably going to perish. And also ah. they're so unique. Like how do you turn around and sell it? You know, like you can't do that. Um, you know. I think there, I personally have, I think there's some like communities that exist that, Oh yeah. They'll come get trees, you. <laughs> these trees, Pat. No, I, I think there's trees that pass through these like communities that are smaller and less policed. So mm. I do think it happens. I mean, I've, I've encountered some pretty shady characters. Oh, so you're saying the other way around. It's like, there might even be like a bonsai black market, but well, I don't like, want to talk it, about it too much. Yeah. We might, uh, yeah, exactly. Have some kind yeah. of yakuza come after us, or something. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the bonsai yakuza. 
Yeah, but, I heard the Yakuza is involved with Bonsai really? a little. Yeah. Oh my god. Because I think there's like a tax loophole. Because right. you could say that you grew, you could buy trees in cash, and then say that you grew them and then sell them, and I think you don't get taxed. Oh yeah. Or I don't know. There's some or sort could, of weird loophole. Or it died. You know, it died, and yeah, yeah. you know that's a loss. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so. For our listeners out there, uh, don't get involved with the mafia and with your bonsai trees. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably not a good time. Uh, yeah, and not. I think what Mike was saying too, not to get bitter and like obsessed with what happens if it gets stolen or something gets stolen. And I actually have seen that happen. There's a nursery in uh, Gardena in LA. It's called Chikugo N, and it it's been open since like the 80s, and they had a couple of trees stolen and they've never opened up since. Yeah. Mm. Uh, they just sell online now and now you can't access the garden. You can't walk around and yeah. it's really tragic. Causes a lot of anxiety. <laughs> it's part of the bitterness that you can get if you let it get to you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not worth it for yourself and for the community. Uh, you can't let those people like, ruin it for everyone mm-hmm. no yeah. i i often refer to bonsai uh to my students i refer to it as a, a study so it's a study in wabi-sabi and so meaning that like you're not going to get it and hold it it's not going to be like i'm going to accept impermanence and that's it i'm done i i under i understand it now impermanence now doesn't affect me it's going to come and go you know and there's going to be times where you find great strength in like what you've discovered in doing bonsai and there's going to be times where it just doesn't matter um but i think all in all that idea of wanting to persevere and pushing through um it's the only truth that really exists in any art i think if you know you can't you can't get beaten down to the point where you give up and you can't get so hung up on one piece of work that you lose sight of the whole Mm-hmm. You know, and I think Paul nailed it when he said you can't get bitter. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. So we'll uh, we'll kind of close on the, the bonsai pottery conversation a little bit and move on. Okay, to the... man, we're gonna have to have Paul back for a round two. That was oh, we, really interesting. We always <laughs> uh we always tend to, to butt up against time and then gives us plenty of time to go back and do other uh, episodes. But let's do a really quick shout out uh session i mean uh session shout, shout out uh, segment really quick shout out you know just uh, get the the horns blaring and stuff man no uh just just let you guys know uh if you can go over to facebook and instagram little things for boneside people has its own page uh facebook's kind of looking sad right now and you go over there and do some stuff on it but the instagram has plenty of things to look at uh we've done tree critiques in the past some of the images are linked up to the episodes you can see them in the description there if you want to hear uh critiques on some of the trees that are there that have those uh have those descriptions i just said that the same way backwards uh but anyway uh so for underhill bonsai you can go over underhillbonsai.com go check out blogs that i've written go to our web store from there and see what i have in stock uh i need to get back on writing articles i've been saying that for a couple of months now uh, but you know how bonsai is and for mike uh tell us about kitsune bonsai real quick uh, well, we're, uh, I'm traveling a lot. I'll be going to California, uh, on Friday and, uh, and continuing to do my travels throughout, you know, Louisiana and Texas. So 
right now we're just offering uh, some local classes. And um, once we kind of get to November and things slow down, we're really going to start kind of reassessing the class structure and maybe be offering some more online stuff. Mm -hmm. And you can go over to kitsuneboneside.com and check out Mike's offerings there. And uh, Paul, you you do actually trade and sell your bonsai pottery. Uh, how can people reach out to you uh, for that information? Uh, I'm on Instagram or Facebook, kibonsaiart.com, or that's my website. Uh, and then on Instagram, it's kibonsaiart. Uh, I don't do as much now. I was doing more uh, when I was in California. I had a little bit more time, but I still do dabble, uh, but I'm pretty... If someone's looking for something, they can contact me and I can see what I could do to find it. But, uh, mm. yeah, it's, it's uh, crazy. And you're yeah, man. far yeah. from home. <laughs> no, I know. I know. And you're making a lot of adjustments, new, new life, new schedule, new everything. So, um, but man, a great episode, really oh, great pick in your brain. We, we got a bonsai word of the week, Mike. Oh, right. Yeah, we got yeah. a bonsai word of the week. I'm sorry. <laughs> we try to nail it every time, but sometimes we skip it on accident. Uh, so I chose a, a word. We can just kind of chat about it for a second if we got to go. Uh, but it's going to be Koshi uh, Mizu or Kashi Mizu. Uh, probably the more appropriate way to uh, pronounce it. I'm it, not uh, sure I know that one. Yeah, this one was I kind of just found it just tinkering around online. It's uh, the method of dipping your bonsai container into a water-filled basin to rehydrate the core of your root ball in case of emergency, especially I, during summer months. I do that all the time. What's it called? Uh, Kosi Misu. Kosi Misu. Yeah. You know that's <clears throat> yeah that's hilarious. I just uh, I just call it dipping in the bucket. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Dip it yeah. in the bucket. <laughs> the old dipping in the bucket routine, but that's interesting. Kozumisu. Yeah, wow, I'm I always. Didn't know they had a whole term for that. Oh yeah, is Jap. I mean, Japanese is a beautiful language. What an efficient um, language. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> one one word is just a whole sentence. It just yeah. it says it tells you exactly what's happening really quick. Right. Yeah. Um, what a that's beautiful. But yeah, that is a really good thing. It's uh, it's also seasonally appropriate too because the summertime can be pretty detrimental especially to little trees and you're saying dip it in the bucket uh always oh. have yourself a bucket of fresh water around so if you ever you get into a uh uh matt can uh bleep this out again if you get into a oh mode um yeah. <laughs> then you can dip the the tree into the water basin and uh yeah. rehydrate that maybe even save its little life that's a good um, idea but yeah, we. I'm joking because Carmen had a slip up on the last episode, and uh, I think we're allowed one one s. Are we not word. allowed to? Are we not allowed to curse? Well, I I have us on like like a PG rating, but oh, I think shoot. even in like a like a PG movie, I think you can still say like damn and ass and stuff. We got to but... move up at least to PG thirteen. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna bleep it out for now, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> it affects the <laughs> listeners. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, we might anyway. get more listeners. Yeah, we start just uh, cursing like sailors, but I, I don't know. Hardcore bonsai uh, conversations going on there. But anyway, yeah, thanks thanks for uh, listening uh, out there. Anyone that's listened to the end of the episode, we always say thank you so much for sticking it out. Uh, make sure you click subscribe. Consider becoming a patron. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, our, our guest, Paul. Thanks, thanks for hanging out, man. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure being on. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me on here.
yeah yeah we'll be we'll be sure to reach out again uh for round two because um, I, I wanted to still have questions about the machino machiano what was there's a, a potter that you like that i've always been interested in so we'll catch up with that on yeah, next yeah. time we'll and, save uh, it for good okay. stuff later. <laughs> save it for next time but all um, right guys yeah thanks for joining and evan i will catch you later okay yeah definitely thank you all for listening see y'all later man all right guys take it easy